Like, I, you know, Paul said, I, I'm a redeemer. I'm actually a Lubbock kid. I went to Texas Tech, graduated from high school, went to Tech. My, my wife, Veronica, uh, there at Tech. And uh, quickly after getting married and finishing college, we actually left in 1999 and moved overseas uh, to East Asia. And so we went as basically newly weds and came back with four kids in tow. So I have four kiddos. Uh, uh, one will graduate this next year, Lord willing. So y'all pray for us. Um, but yeah, we were there as, uh, as workers, global workers, if you can imagine what I mean. And we worked with two different unreached people groups, people that have little to zero access to the good news about Jesus. Um, and so we were there trying to plant churches and raise up men to plant churches and, and so on. Did a lot of evangelism. But about six years ago, actually, next month, we came back to Lubbock for the first time on a furlough, and I've been here ever since. It was one of those things where the Lord kind of did a 180 on us, and we're like, whoa, are you serious? You want us to be in Lubbock? And Because, uh, you know, being from Lubbock, I wanted to be anywhere else but Lubbock. Uh, but the Lord had other plans. And so we've been there ever since, been at Redeemer about five years now, uh, working with missions and church planting. Um, so grateful for that. And that's actually what we're going to talk about um, this morning is sending and what a Christian's role is in sending, sending to the nations and sending church planters. And my aim and desire is that God would stir our hearts this morning to help us understand how we are to be a sent and a sending people. That as Christians, we send, and we, we need to know why we send, and we need to know where we send, and we need to know how we send, and we need to understand biblically what our role is as senders and as sent ones ourselves. But before we do that, I want to pray for us that the Lord would just be kind to us this morning and work in us and transform our hearts through His Word. So if you will, pray with me. God, we come humbly before you this morning. Uh, And I pray that we would posture ourselves at your word, that it is our authority, that we submit to it as words spoken by you. And that every word that is in your Bible is for our correction, our reproof, and our encouragement, and for our faith to grow and increase, and an opportunity for us to know you deeply in, in your character and what you've done through saving us, just all that, Lord, so... I pray this morning that it wouldn't just be a fun time together, but that, Lord, you would work in us. You would transform us and make us more like you. And we pray all these things because of what Jesus has done, that now we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, as Hebrews tells us. We can enter into your presence because of the work of Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in order for us to understand our role as senders, I think first we need to understand a few things about God himself. That he himself is a sending God. And he sends or sent because there's a need for sending. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and a catechism is um, just kind of a compilation of doctrines throughout that you would find in the Bible. And a catechism puts it in question and answer form. And so one of the questions, actually the very first question the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And I, I think that's a great question because it's asking at the very core of humanity, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? 
What's the reason we were created, the reason we have life, and the ultimate reason for our existence? But this purpose isn't innately clear to us as broken people because of the effects of sin. We've lost sight of why we exist. And we've created this pantheon of other reasons and ways for us to fill that purpose. And we're missing it. And we try to find purpose in life, but we do it through our brokenness. And we do it in darkness. And a lot of times we just make a a royal mess out of it, don't we? And we try to find this purpose on our own. And we're trying to find the important things in life. But they are gifts from God. But we then make those things primary. And we miss the point. And so we're all trying to find this identity. This place of belonging. To find a reason that we're here on this earth. And I think if we're all honest, we've all asked ourselves those same questions. What's my purpose here? Well, the Westminster Catechism, that's the first question it asks. What is the chief end of humanity? Why are we here? And then it gives an answer. And it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That sounds pretty good, actually. It's not a a bunch of do's and don'ts, a legalistic list of things you have to do, and that's why you're here. It actually says, just glorify God and enjoy him while you do it. That sounds great. And the reason that we live and breathe is that we would not only know God, but to glorify Him and delight in Him, have joy in Him. When my kids were small, you know, they'd be playing out on the street and they'd come home. They're talking all about this friend. Well, as a dad, I wanted a little more context. Who's this kid my kids are playing with, you know? So I'd be like, okay, what, well, what's your friend's name? And they're like, well, I don't know. And I just thought that was so funny that kids don't really mess with names. Where we as adults, you know, like it's a big deal if I forgot Danny's name who introduced himself. Like, hey, what's up, brother? Yep. You know, it's embarrassing because Danny and I as adults have a different relationship than kids do. Well, it's the same, th- it's the same thing with God. We need to know things about him. And we need to know things about what he's done in order to enjoy him. And in order to glorify him, if we don't know things about him, I mean, you don't enjoy or glorify things you have little or zero understanding about. So for me, I could never say I have joy in engineering. (laughs) I know nothing about it. In fact, that word strikes fear into my heart about very, you know, complex maths that I am terrified of, right? And so I know little about it. So why would I step into the realm and say, oh man, I enjoy engineering, It's so great. And sing its praises when I know nothing about it. And that's the same thing with God. We can't, and nor will anybody, be able to fulfill their created purpose if they don't know who God is and don't know his name and don't know anything about who he is because, or anything about what he's done. They don't know the mercy and the forgiveness and the peace and the love and the redemption that we have through him that he's offered to us. But there's this problem. There's people all over the world that can't even get access to find out about God. All of you sitting in this room have access to a book you're probably holding in your hand. I see them around. And we're talking about billions of people around the world that don't have that. And so how can they fulfill their created purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever When they can't even have the tool, the thing that is revealed, where God reveals himself to us through his word. And so how can you, how can they 
How can anybody praise something that they don't know about? And so let me be explicitly clear here. Um, The only reason that we can even know him in the first place is because God himself is ascending God. He sent his son. He sent Jesus to the earth in order to fix our broken relationship that we have with a father. To mend that defied. To receive the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And therefore, he made a way for us to even approach the father. Like I said, when I prayed in Hebrews, it talks about through the work of Jesus, we can boldly, not sheepishly, but boldly approach the throne of grace, a king. We can approach his throne in confidence because Jesus was sent because God is ascending God. And thankfully, he's ascending God. It's in his loving nature to reach out to those in need, to send help to sin relief, to sin redemption. And so we appeal as, a, a, as Christians to the very nature of God as ascending God. And so then we likewise, uh, because we know him, we become like him. And we too, because it's in his nature, we too become ascending people so that others can glorify God and know him as well. It's actually a natural process that because of the joy that we have in God, we want to speak those truths to others so that they can see and enjoy and delight in God as well. Listen to Psalm 73, 28. It says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. So for my good, it it is great to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So what he's saying is, when I'm near God, there's safety, there's security, there's peace. Right? It's great. That's great verbiage. The nearness of God is my good. And so when I'm near him, man, I have all that I need in Christ, in God. But listen to the second part of the verse. That I may tell of your works. All of us are evangelists for something. In this room, all of us. Might be your work, might be the keto diet, I don't know. It's just something we're passionate about and we talk about it. And so, what the Psalm 78 is saying is the nearness of God is for my good. Something happens when I take refuge in Him and I can't help but speak then to tell others about Him. I mean, over and over in the Gospels, you see that, right? Like the guy who was uh, demon-possessed, and you know, said, Jesus said, what's your name? He said, we are legion. You remember that guy? The, the um, I forget, the gar- garden, the, I can't even say it. Gennesaret, demon-possessed man. And so, uh, Jesus heals him, right? Cast out the demons and pigs. Pigs are off the cliff. And what's Jesus tell that guy? Is, don't, don't say a word. My time has not come. What's the God do? He can't help but speak. And over and over in the Gospels, you see that. When we are near God, we tell. When he truly is our refuge, we tell. But not only are we cinders because of God's character, we are cinders as Christians because he's told us to send people. So part of it we appeal to his nature because that's who he is. But then also on top of that, he has given us the command to sin so that others might know the joy in life, to know God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. See, there's this beautiful thing that happens when we place our faith and our trust in Christ. Just like the son and the father have this amazing close relationship with each other, we too 
now that we have the, the Son and believe in what He's done, we have that now with the Father because of the work of the Son. And we're brought into that relationship so that we can enjoy the benefits of that. Those of us that were very far off have brought in, been brought in and given a seat at the table. That's what adoption's all about. Those that were far off through the work of Christ have been brought in, sat down at our dining room table and said, My name is your name. My name is your name. And through the work of Jesus, we are brought into that. So just like Jesus was sent by the Father to proclaim the good news of reconciliation to a world that does not know him, we too now are brought into that commissioning to do the same thing. It's just what we do as disciples. We imitate our leader, right? And Jesus was, when he was about to return to heaven, after he had done everything, he had, he had died on the cross, he had resurrected from the dead, he had appeared for 40 days to, to over like four or 500 people. After he had accomplished all that he came to do, he took his disciples up on a mountain and he gave them these final words. So we talk about the famous last words, right? What did, you know, so-and-so on his deathbed, he said this. Or, you know, this general said this. And then he went into battle and died this valiant death. Like, last words mean something to us. Well, these are Jesus's. So they should mean a whole lot to us, right? So listen to Matthew 28. And you guys maybe have heard this before. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission is what we call it. Where Jesus commissions Christians. And he says in 18, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so a couple of things here. First of all, it says to go. Right? It says go. We see that. But go where? Like, what, what does this mean? Where do we go? And it's not explicit, is it? It doesn't say, like, I want you to go next door. I want you to go across town. I want you to go to Amarillo. I want you to go to Utah. I want you to move to New York City. I want you to go to Canada. I want you to go to Saudi Arabia. There is no definition to what going means. He just merely says go. But why wasn't he specific on where he wanted us to go? Because the going part in that verse isn't the main thing that he's concerned about. Rather, it's the next part of the verse. It says to go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. In our going, the goal and the purpose is to make disciples. Disciples are those that have understood the gospel of Jesus and they believe that it's true and therefore they place their faith and their hope and their trust in what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, right? We are followers of Jesus. We are disciples. He's our leader and we follow. And so our goal is then to make other people like that. Other people that are followers of Jesus. These followers of Jesus, those that have affixed their future to Jesus have said, He is my treasure, and there's assurance in the fact that the gospel of Jesus is true. But, who do we make disciples of? And the verse goes on to say, of all nations. Now, this isn't geopolitical borders. This isn't, uh, we'll, we'll speak Texan here for a second. This isn't Texas, when we say nation, right? This isn't America. This isn't Mexico. This isn't Pakistan. This isn't Myanmar. 
We're not talking about political government states and entities. This word actually, uh, this word for nation in the Greek New Testament, is a, uh, it's called ethne. What's that sound like? Ethnicities. It's where we get our English word for ethnicity. And so what Jesus is saying is don't be concerned about geopolitical borders. They change all the time anyways. What he's saying is I want you to go and make disciples of every ethnicity. Every ethnicity that I've created. Listen um, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word there in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, to, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation of it as well. Same word. I will make you a great ethnicity. And then he goes on to say, um, in you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Guess what that word is? Ethnicity. And so what Jesus is saying is don't be concerned about, you know, this one nation. What he's saying is every every unique tribe, every unique ethnicity that I have placed on this planet, it is your job as Christians to go and make disciples of those people. And so where are these ethnicities? Well, they're all around us. We actually make up ethnicities in this room. I have German and French and English in my ancestry. And you guys have your own. We all represent ethnicities. In Lubbock, where I live, at Texas Tech, there's 120 nationalities represented at Tech. But inside of those those nationalities are multiple different ethnicities. China alone has over 500 India, about the same. This isn't just a, you're Indian. This isn't just your Chinese. There are so many different ethnicities and languages that are beautiful cultures that God has created. And he's telling us to go and make disciples. Even at Tech, even in Pampa, wherever we go, we are to be disciple-making people. Wherever we are. Whether it's white or Hispanic or African American, those are ethnicities. And we tell. The nearness of God is my good so that I can tell the truth to others. Right? However, the greatest needs among ethnicities are in places that have little to zero access to Jesus. Like I said earlier. No Bibles. They don't know any Christians. They don't know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows a Christian. This is amazing. Just think about the privilege we have sitting in this room worshiping together. It's a privilege. It's a blessing by God. But there are people all around the world that today on their Sunday, they hid and they worshiped in secret. Or there's people around the world that have no idea that Jesus exists. None. So yes, be a disciple maker wherever you are. But there is a need to send other disciple makers far. 
There was a, let, me, let me just give you a personal example of what I mean by little to zero access. So, like I said, my wife and I, we lived in East Asia, and the people group we lived in was just scattered out all through the mountains, over around 2 million people and ethnicity of 2 million people scattered for out. They didn't live in one city, you know. I wish. That would have been a lot easier. Um, and so we would go out to the villages and trying to figure out how to share the gospel in contextual ways. And so there was this one time, um, me and a few people on our team were just walking down this road and actually had some locals with us, some local Christians. And so they, they're same culture, same dialect, everything, same county. This, I mean, they're, it's like, you know, you guys talking to each other. There's just no communication issue, right? And so we're walking down the street. We meet this guy. And they said, hey, I want to share with this man. I said, okay, go for it, you know. So I'm just kind of sitting back listening to this local share with the local. And they said, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? And he goes, yeah. Doesn't he live like two villages down the road? Now, it's funny, right? But think about that. Think about that. You're talking about absolutely no context. Not, uh, yeah. Isn't that like a spiritual teacher? Yeah, I think I've heard it. You know, maybe they don't know anything about him, but they've heard of him. Think about what that meant. That person in his life had never, ever, ever heard anything, not even a mention of the word of Jesus. That's hard. And so we come back. To Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all ethnicities. Go. Listen to Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then can they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach, who preach the good news. Christian, if you're sitting in this room without excuse, without excuse, we are to be senders or a goer. Or both. We are all disciple makers. Some just go near. Some of you will never leave Pampa. And that's okay. It's great. Be in Pampa. Be all in. Be in West Texas. Be all in. That is maybe what the Lord is even calling you to be. Is be here. But what there is no excuse about is that we are all to be disciple makers. Every single one of us. From the top to bottom. Every single one of us are to be disciple makers. However, there are some of us that go far. And what do we do when we go far? Same thing we do here. We make disciples. Now, granted, there's cultural differences and there's language you got to learn. And, you know, there's some obstacles there. And you have to talk about Jesus in different ways and all that kind of stuff. But it's the same gospel. It's the same Savior. It's the same Bible. It's the same God. And we do it the same way. People have to confess the name of Jesus. And so that's what we do. That's who we are as Christians. We are all a sent people. We send. Some of us go near and some of us go far. But without excuse, we are to be people who help others 
glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we have to be just as committed as senders as the goers are to going. Just as committed. In his book, uh, John Piper, the book is called Let the Nations Be Glad. If you've never read it, I suggest you read it. But in the very beginning of his book, in fact, I think the book starts out like this in the first paragraph. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Let me say that again. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Not missions because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. There won't be a need for it. Worship is ultimate. That's what the greater catechism, or the shorter catechism was talking about. Glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. That's what we're going to do for all of eternity. Is we will be in the presence of God and there will be so much delight and so much joy. And it's going to be amazing to be in His actual presence. But right now, because people don't know the saving work of Jesus, missions exist so that we get them to the point where they, those brothers and sisters from all around the world, will be beside us worshiping the same God. Worshiping together. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So, Redeemer, what role, what role will you play in seeing the end of missions and the beginning of eternal worship of our God? What is your role? So, Jesus is telling us in this, these famous last words and these final words, He's commissioning us to go and make disciples among all ethnicities, all people, where? Wherever there are needs. Wherever people need to hear about Jesus. We are to be disciple makers near and far. And the question is, where are you going? Are you going near or far? It's not if you will, it's where. Are you a near goer or a far goer? Are you sending others to go far? Because there's this other problem. I want you to listen in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, after this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. So they're going to prepare the way for Jesus to come, right? And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We, we tend to believe lies. Muslims will never come to faith in Jesus. That's just a lie. It really is. The harvest is plentiful. When people hear about the beautiful works of Jesus and that there's forgiveness and grace. What an amazing word. Grace. Nobody else on this planet, no other religious system has grace. Where somebody took the punishment instead of us taking it for ourselves. When they hear that, it is, it is irresistible. The problem is just there's not enough laborers going into the harvest to tell the story. The harvest is plentiful. We just don't have enough people. Christians are not going. They're not making disciples. Redeemer, we should all be about being laborers ourselves and at the same time sending out laborers. Laborers are needed, but so are the senders. 
We need both. Like, listen to me. I'm, I'm the missions guy in my church. I want to send as many people as I can. But you guys had a, a slide going up here that talked about being a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or 9. Listen, we can't send people unless people here are as committed to sending as the goers are going. It takes money. It really does. It takes cash. I mean, there's just no way about it. But both are needed for the kingdom to go forward. We need people to go, and we need people back here going, go. What do you need? Go. I'll give it to you. So I want you to consider a few things this morning. I want you to consider what your role as a sender might need to be. In light of God being ascending God and you being his disciple, how can you glorify God and enjoy him forever yourself first and then imitate him as a sender, as a person so invested in the kingdom of reconciliation that you would consider your role as a sender of extreme value and importance? Extremely important. What then would you need to do to change your mindset to change your perspective and the way you spend money and and use your time, what does your role need to be? That's a hard question. So let me just give you three examples, two from Scripture and then one just in church history. Okay, so that you understand. So first of all, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is talking to the guys there in Philippi. And he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. They had sent Paul. So he's talking to his support team, basically. They had sent him out. And you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even at Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God and the Father, God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the church in Philippi knew that not only we're all going to be goers, to go disciple make far, but they were knew they were going to be near, but they were just as invested in the ministry of somebody going far as he was. It says it increases to your credit so much so that these guys are commemorated in Scripture because of their partnership with Paul in the kingdom. So that the gospel might go forth. Let me, let me give you another example. The, the Apostle John writing in 3 John. Listen to what he says in 3 John verse 5 through 8. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Strangers as they are did not know them. But he's saying what they, they, they do is faithful to these guys that don't know. Who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name of, of Jesus. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these. That we may, listen to this. That we may be fellow workers for truth. In your sending we become fellow workers for truth. 
We are just as invested as disciple makers that stay here and send as those that go. We are, listen, this is amazing. A lot of times we think, well, the missionaries, you know, they're the, they're, they're the ones. They're the, you know, the mighty, you know, faithful, spiritual people that have all this theological knowledge. But John just said something otherwise. He said, those of us that stay back and send are just as valuable in the kingdom. We are fellow workers for the truth. And so you may never step into a village in the hills of Thailand to tell anybody about Jesus. But when you send somebody there, it's like you were there. You are just as connected and just as invested in the, as a fellow worker for truth. Okay, one more example. A guy named Robert Arthington. He was an accomplished English scientist. And he had really just one interest. The conversion of the lost. Arthington, it said that he was worth millions. In fact, when he died, his estate, and this is back in the 1800s, was worth five to six million. A lot of money. <clears throat> but he chose to live in a single room. He could add butlers and service, you know, maids and all this kind of stuff. He chose to live in one room, cook his own meals, and share with students who were in need. Yet he gave a tremendous amount of money during his lifetime to Christian missions that was used to support mission work in the African Congo, in India, Thailand, and China. And when he died, it said that, yeah, I said earlier, his estate was worth $5 million, And he even turned that over to a mission uh, society, an agency that would send other workers. He gave everything. He lived it. He breathed it. And when he died, he gave it all away. And after he died, they found a letter that he had written to a missionary. It was found in his belongings. Listen to a little excerpt of it. It said, were I to do it again, I would gladly live in one room, make the floor my bed, a box my chair, another my table, rather than the heathen should perish for the lack of knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'd do it all again. He was determined to make that kind of self-denial not just for his own glory, but for God's. A pattern of his life so that everything he had could be used for the lost hearing the good news of Jesus. It, it was even said he wore the same coat for 17 years. He refused to spend money on himself so that every dime was used to help people around the world hear the good news of Jesus. His tombstone reads, Arthur, uh, Robert Arthington. His life and wealth were devoted to the spread of the gospel among the heathen. What a legacy. And he has the same commission that you and I have. The same God telling us to go and make disciples of all ethnicities. And teach them what Christ has commanded. Teach them the things here in his Bible. That legacy is the same as we have. It's just whether we're obedient to it or not. It's ours to be had as followers of Jesus. And so in conclusion, I, wanna, I want you to consider a few things. I have three things I want you to consider. First of all, how are you going to be a disciple maker here in Pampa, Texas? We live in a, a society that's consumer driven. We go and we're entertained, you know. It's just kind of who we are. But how are you going to invest the words of Jesus into other people. 
What are you going to do? How can you help someone grow in their understanding of Jesus? And you might be sitting there thinking, man, I am not qualified. Well, listen, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have the same Holy Spirit as I have. You have the same Holy Spirit that Robert Arthington had. You have the same Holy Spirit that Paul the Apostle had. And you have the Bible. And you're a part, as First Peter uh, says to us in chapter 2. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Everybody that puts their name, in, uh, their faith in Jesus, in the name of Jesus. You're a holy nation, a people for whose possession? His possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you, yeah. You used to not be a people. But now through the work of Jesus, you are a people. You are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, you may be thinking, I I don't know enough about the Bible. But you have a story to tell of how you came to know Jesus. Are you telling that story? And if you're sitting here week after week after week on a Sunday morning, you're learning things from the Bible. It's great. Tell somebody else what you're learning. You don't have to be a theologian. You're a Christian, and that's who we are. That's what we do. We imitate our God. We imitate who He is as ascending God. We, we do the work of the Great Commission. We make disciples where we are. Are you opening your mouths and telling the wonderful truths about how you came from darkness into the marvelous light? So tell, tell. And if you don't know how you want to grow, I guarantee you there's people in this room that are discipling other people. So go and learn from them. Go sit down with those folks and say, teach me what you do. They'll disciple you and then you can go disciple somebody else. It's not hard. Go tell of the beautiful works of Jesus found here in his word. The second thing I want you to consider is what is your role in sending Do you need to make sacrifices and monthly budgets or how you spend? Or do you need to go on a a mission trip and see it for yourself about these needs I was talking about? Do you need to lead a night of prayer with your small group or friends or coworkers or something where you take one of these unreached people groups and you pray faithfully that they would know Jesus? What do you need to do as a sender? This isn't a church staff thing only. This is a Christian thing. This is what we do. And so, yeah, maybe you need to make some sacrifices in your life to meet some tangible needs here in Pampa. I'm just asking you, what role do you need to play to be a faithful sender that others would go far and tell the beautiful works of Jesus? What's your role to play? What do you need to do to be a fellow worker for truth? And then the last thing I want you to consider um, in order for us here, you know, Redeemer, um, <clears throat> to be a disciple maker and a sender, it will cost us something. It, it just will. It costs us money or time. It might cost our weekends or vacations. I don't know. It will cost us something. But the question I want to ask you is, do you think it's worth it? Do you think that losing some of these things is worth it? And this is a question about what you treasure and what you value. Or do you like your things? You like your own kingdom. I don't want to give it up. And so I'm asking you, what do you treasure?
Is all this worth it? To be just as committed as a sender as the goers are to going. And so just in case you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I'm sorry, man. This just isn't for me. I mean, hearing about how God is ascending God. He sent the Son so that we can be reconciled. Even after hearing Jesus' final commissioning words that we too should be disciple makers near and far. Even after all that, you're still sitting there thinking, yeah, I just, I don't care. I don't want to do it. It's not for me. I have other plans. I want to leave you with a quote. And then we'll have a time of reflection and prayer. So this guy's name was William Booth. He's an Englishman who started the Salvation Army. We all know about that. I mean, his legacy has lasted for a long, long time. So William Booth, listen to what he would say to a Christian who, who thinks sending and investing in the kingdom isn't for them. That they don't feel called to be a part of this. Listen to this. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call? I think you should say, put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden, agonizing heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful well for help. Stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face. Whose mercy you have professed to obey. And tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Let's pray. I just want to give you guys a few seconds.